I am so pleased that we were able to secure our first choice speaker for this program today. Cokie Roberts has been in all of our family rooms and all of our living rooms via TV and radio, so she's somebody we know. At a time when we're unsure whether the press is providing accurate, well-researched information in the news that we receive, Koki, I think, has been a voice of reason, of moderation, and has, I believe, become one of the most trusted reporters and commentators in the country. And she's familiar. We're comfortable with Koki. Koki is her own brand. Most people, I'm told by my sources, think of Koki's family business as politics. With a father, Hale Boggs, who was House Majority Leader, and a mother, Lindy, who took over his seat and served longer in that body. But her family, in a way, seems to be more about history. There are descendants in the family that go back to Jamestown. Some are buried there. There's a long history in New Orleans. Her mother is a preservationist and actually lived on Bourbon Street. And I'm told that Cokie made a sentimental trip to the Adams family site in Quincy, Massachusetts. This is a woman who understands the power of place. This is a, wonder, a woman who understands, and you can tell by her writing, the power of narrative. Now, I'm not going to cover the information that's on page six of the program because you can read that. You know about her work with ABC News, George and Sam and NPR and all of that, but let me just fill in a couple of blanks. And that is that Cokie Roberts, that, that in her more than 30 years in broadcasting, she's won countless awards, including three Emmys. She's been inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame and was cited by the American Women in Radio and Television as one of the 50 greatest women in the history of broadcasting. And in addition to her appearances on the airwaves, Cokie, along with her husband, Stephen Roberts, writes a weekly column syndicated in newspapers around the country by United Media. The Roberts are also contributing editors to USA Weekend Magazine, and together they wrote From This Day Forward, an account of their more than 35-year marriage and other marriages in American history. The book immediately went to the New York Times bestseller list, followed, following a run of half a year on the list by Cokie Roberts' other book, We Are Our Mother's Daughters. You know, of course, about founding mothers. She's currently working on a new book, and in addition to all of that, in her spare time, she serves on boards of several nonprofit institutions, Save the Children, the Foundation of the National Archives. She does a lot of breast cancer work. And this year was reappointed to the President's Commission on Service and Civic Participation. She's a mother of two, grandmother of four, six, six. <laughs> this wasn't written that long ago. <laughs> it's been a productive year for her family. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Cokie Roberts. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have to get those two babies in, you know, because um, they're the third child in each family, and I'm a third child, and we always get left behind. Uh, my mother claims that the reason that there are no baby pictures of me is because it was wartime. Right. Right. They needed the silver nitrate. Um, 
Bill, Bill alluded to the fact that my mother's home is on Bourbon Street, and um, I can't sort of let that go. I mean, she really, it's really on Bourbon Street. I mean, it is smack dab in the middle of all the honky-tonk on Bourbon Street. If you've been there, you've been to my mother's house. And um, after she was in Congress, she retired for a few years and discovered that was very hard work. And in 1997, at the age of 81, she took a new job in a new country as the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican, which seemed like a great capstone to a career in public service. What happened in this country happened, and my mother found herself representing Bill Clinton to the Pope. Um, um, Think of it. Hardest job in the diplomatic service, but uh, if anybody could do it, Mom could. Um... But uh, I teased her that when she moved from Bourbon Street to the Vatican, um, that, that the costumes didn't change, you know? It was, it was still guys in dresses, but, um, but uh, she is now uh, safely back. And uh, it is true that my mother is the reason that I became um, so interested in history, and particularly the history of women, because um, she um, not only lived it, but she paid a great deal of attention to it. And I also knew from watching her and the women around her, Lady Bird Johnson and Pauline Gore and Betty Ford and the others, that the tremendous influence that they had and, and realized that other uh, women in history certainly had to have at least uh, equal influence, and none of us knew about it, and I had to do the work. It turns out to be extremely hard work, uh, and I'm still, you know, sort of mired in it, but every so often I am forced to, you know, get my head into the 21st century and, and do some reporting to earn my paycheck, and um, this past week, and I know you all have a million stories like this, but this one just happened to me. I um, was called on to do a variety of things about um, Larry Craig, and we just won't go there. Uh, there's no way to even talk about it without double entendres that you don't even intend. So, but um, the uh, the business of his wife coming out and standing by him while he's making this announcement, you know, and it's just so painful to behold. And so I was asked to to, to do some reporting and stories on. Um, on wives standing by their political husbands when they're in trouble. And I said to this producer, um, well, of course this goes back, you know, throughout our history. The first one to do it was Betsy Hamilton. Uh, She stood by Alexander's side, you know, as he had to admit to this affair. And and because she was a Schuyler and and was from this well-respected family, and because she stood by him, she saved his political life. I mean, so the producer says to me, oh, good, I'll find photographs. that, you know? I mean, get back to me if you do. I, so it's really good to be with you guys. I mean, it's... <laughs> oh, gosh. And I, I did finally take pity and say there is one famous portrait. But, oh, dear. Uh, and uh, and uh, seriously, you know, it's, I, I joke about this all the time because otherwise you cry. But the... Um, the fact is, is that we need to know this history in order to understand what's going on right now. Um, you know, people keep talking about this being the most partisan time in American history. Baloney! Uh, it was Richard Brookheiser said in a panel I was on with him the other day at the New York Historical Society. He said, he said, you know, 
In recent years, we've had a vice president accidentally shoot a friend. You know, and uh, you know, in the 18th century, early 19th century, it was um, it was uh, vice president intentionally shooting his political enemy. Um, I seem not to be able to let go of Hamilton at the moment. Um, I am this because this is exactly where I am in the book. I'm I'm um, I'm actually right at the Burr conspiracy in the book, and boy, is that a pain to write about. But because um, everybody has a different view, but uh, Betsy Hamilton, in fact totally got how important history was. And um, and she spent all those years, because she lived, you know, until she was like 96 years old. She lived well into the middle of the 19th century. So there she was, this old, quite revered woman. She had started the orphan asylum in New York. She had led a very productive life um, after Hamilton was shot. but And it was not easy. She had no money. But um, she spent a huge amount of it burnishing his image because she knew if she could get the history, if she could control the history, she could control the, um, the way that he would be seen forevermore. Uh, and so it was you know, a true sense of, of spin. And um, she, actually, she also wanted to control what wasn't available. And so, you know, the confession that he wrote about the, uh, the Reynolds affair, which was, I mean, just too much information, you know, um, she was horrified by. And she kept trying to buy up every copy of it. And unscrupulous bookstore owners would print up fresh ones just for Betsy to buy them, you know. But, <laughs> but she did understand uh, that, um, that history uh, was important, and uh, and she uh, is, was in uh, the beginning of a long line of people who really have have understood it. But uh, we we need to keep renewing it. I think it's probably no accident that you have chosen to meet in the South, where we do have a better, somewhat better sense of our history. We like to nurture it um, than than the rest of the country. I I love one of the beginning lines in uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, where uh, they're sitting in the graveyard in Savannah and having martinis, and um, the um, uh, the narrator says, you know, or maybe the woman who's, I guess the woman who's entertaining him says, you know, you're in Georgia. I mean, in Atlanta, they want to know what you do, how much money you make. In Macon, they want to know what church you go to. In Augusta, they want to know who your people are. In Savannah, they want to know what you want to drink. Um, but, but the truth is we have in the South uh, relied heavily on who our people are. It's pretty much all we had for a period of time. And our people might have been total scoundrels, you know. Uh, we, but we ignored that, uh, the, the drunks and the crazy people and, and the, you know, just total rapscallions uh, and, and cherished our people. Um, but we did it as cheerleaders. And, of course, that's what so much of what your societies, the men houses, and what many of you took over at various points in history were, were sort of cheerleaders for the people who were there. And that's fine. There's, there's a certain value to that. Um, but what you all have done, and what you've done wonderfully in most cases, is... Uh, is find a way to tell the full story. 
and tell the whole history. And I know sometimes you've had to do that with some opposition from heirs. Um, but um, it, is, it is the story uh, that people in this country need to know and uh, need to know the whole thing. I, I must say, every so often I do feel that our ignorance of history in America is something of a blessing as well as a curse because we don't nourish the hatreds uh, that uh, you see in the rest of the world. And we don't, you know, what's happening in Iraq right now is not even Sunni versus Shiite anymore. It's Shiite versus Shiite because now that there's not a repressive regime, people can go back and say, but we had vowed to uh, to uh, honor our ancestor who was killed in 1360. And, uh, you know, long before this country was ever thought of by a European. And... Um, and they're, they're now carrying out those blood feuds. And um, we at least, with, you know, with a few Hatfield and McCoy exceptions, uh, do not have that kind of history in this country, and it's a great blessing. Um, but it is also, of course, a tremendous curse because we do need to know what went before us to understand uh, what's going on today. I, for instance, I really don't think I can cover politics well without having a very strong sense of, of the history of this country. Um, you know, I talk about the partisanship. You know, I have really, by reading the history and getting a sense of how partisan this country has been really since the uh, first Washington term, the middle of the first Washington term, uh, it's given me a completely different analysis of the last period that we've been through. You know, uh, those of us who have been in Washington for a very long time spend a lot of our energy bemoaning the fact that people don't uh, come together more and that the Congress is so at swords points and that people just do things uh, for partisan edge. And, you know, I was doing a, a program yesterday with Bill Frist, uh, the former majority leader of the Senate, who's doing wonderful work with Save the Children on uh, global health. But he and Tom Daschle, the other, you know, also a former majority leader of the Senate on the other side, have come together to do all kinds of work uh, to try to get people in, civically engaged. You know, great. They do this after they're out of the Senate, you know. I keep saying, why couldn't you work and play well with others while you're in the Senate? And um, tonight we're honoring President Bush 41 and President Clinton, who have done all this great work around the world on relief. And again, you know, it's great. Isn't that nice? Now that you've defeated each other and, you know, said terrible things about each other, and you all have come together. But the truth is, I've now that I've looked at it in the broad range of our history, I've come to believe that the period that we who have lived through it in Washington think of as normalcy was actually aberrant. And that was the period after World War II that really lasted until, um, until the 1980s. And you had these big Congresses. You had an enormous Congress in 1946 of Republican freshmen, followed by an enormous Congress of 1948 of Democratic freshmen. And these were people who were very self-conscious veterans. They, went, they ran for office as the men who went, not the men who sent. And so they came to Congress having all been engaged in the same endeavor, as was the country. 
And, uh, and so they really didn't have the same level of partisanship as has been normal in our history. And, uh, and that, you know, that was kind of a revelation to me, that that, that that was the period that was different. And for us to sort of look at, at it as the norm and think we can go back to it, I think is, is just dreaming. That what we're in now is the norm, I'm sorry to say. Uh, so all you can do is, is beat up on them for it and try to make sure that they try to get something done occasionally. Uh, but, um, but to say that we're ever going to go back to this sort of time when, when the sun went down, everybody sat down together and poured the bourbon and branch and you know, lit up the cigars and were best friends, that's not going to happen because it hasn't been true throughout our history. I just use it as an example to talk about why I think it's so relevant uh, for those of us who are covering something modern and today to know and doing it daily to know about um, to know about what's gone on in the past. I think that um, that is your bottom line here, your your theme, relevance, the bottom line, is is that question. How, how do other people feel the way I do? How do other people feel that it is relevant to know um, what has gone on in the past? And, of course, part of the main answer is to be interesting. Uh, and that's not necessarily bells and whistles. Um, I know there's a lot of emphasis on that. But it's really just telling the story. I mean, history is great. It's gossip, you know. And we all love gossip. And, uh, and it, you know, the history textbook writers should basically be taken out and shot um, because they have managed to make it boring. And uh, that is just incredible to me. How can you make it boring? It's so interesting. And um, so I think that that's, that's the main thing, is to tell the stories and tell everybody's stories. And as I said before, I think that's what you're beginning to do in, in wonderful ways, the stories of all our, our myriad ethnicities and religions and races in this country. But also tell the story of both sexes, I suspect that you see more little girls in your institutions than you see little boys, just a guess. Um, but they are the children who are, tend to be more interested in this. And um, they need to find someone to relate to, someone like them. Uh, and that is, that's what relevance comes from. It's the reason I'm writing these books um, about the women. I'm writing them almost entirely with little girls in mind. Uh, so that they, uh, I mean, they're fun for other people to read too, but they, I want the little girls to know about it. I want them to know about these women and what came before. And in the, t in the period when they're learning about what the men did, what were the women doing? Who were the men listening to? Who were they spending time with? Oh, um, and uh, what were those women saying? Not easy to find, really, really, really hard to find because nobody paid any attention. And, uh, and many of you have boxes of letters of those women uh, but that, that have not been gone through, certainly not transcribed, and certainly not uh, put in some situation where people like me have an opportunity to uh, read them with any ease. And so um, that is a big challenge, but it is something that I think does make the history much more relevant and make it much more relevant to, um, to everybody. And, you know, school kids do find that they enjoy this. Um, Marvin Pinkert is here from the National Archives, and 
you know, he has done wonderful work of making documents interesting. Think about it. Uh, you know, it's not your most um, fascinating thing. And yet, and yes, there are bells and whistles, but it's also true that the documents themselves are interesting and can be made interesting to kids. And, um, and they, uh, they do relate to it. But, you know, without the documents, without the records, we don't have any history. And that's why it's so important to save them and to, to make them available. Uh, you know, it's no accident that we have recently had a spate of really interesting books about Adams and Jefferson and uh, Franklin and uh, Washington. And it's because of the Founding Fathers Project of getting their papers out and getting them in some form where people who can write interestingly can read them. Now, it's taking forever, uh, and it doesn't have to be that elaborate. It can be as simple as transcribing or scanning the documents and getting them online where people can, can see them. Because, as I say, without the records, we don't have history we can count on. We can, we can guess. We can guess from shards and from porcelain and from uh, paintings and wall paintings and murex shells. You know, we can make conjectures. I, there was a wonderful story. We, Steve and I lived in Greece for four years and did a lot of archaeological stories. And one of the great finds on the island now called Santorini, Thera, this is three-story high buildings from the 1500 B.C., you know, a millennium and a half before Pompeii. And, um, and they were destroyed by a volcano. And when they were dug up and they found this, you know, thing on the second floor that seemed to have, you know, some, it must be some religious significance. You know, what was this bowl? It had to be religious. Then there were pipes from it. It was second-story plumbing in 1500 B.C. Uh, so, you know, conjecture only goes so far. You actually need uh, the records the actual records to tell the story. And that's what you all are all in control of. Um, that is something we learned in my hometown all too well after Katrina, uh, when we were in terrible danger of losing records, particularly the notarial records, which were all the property ownership going back to before the purchase. And, um, and people had to get in there and try to dry them and, and preserve them. And we really did learn. And a lot, we got a lot of help from probably many of you. Um, uh, uh, we learned how key it is. And it did give a sense uh, to people around the country who care about these things that, um, that these records are terribly important and that without the records, we can't know the stories that make the history fun. So um, I guess the question then is, how do we make people care? And I know all these conferences um, always come up with sort of catchy phrases on these things, so I've come up with one. And that is advocate, authenticate, and accommodate. And first, advocacy. Uh, One of the things that I know from covering Washington as long as I have is advocacy works uh, and there are so many examples I can give you that have nothing to do with campaign contributions and uh, people, you know, feathering the nest of politicians. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They didn't have any money, but they had some horrible stories of kids who had gotten killed, 
And uh, they got, they, they managed to get attention, get laws passed that no state got highway funds unless they raised the drinking age to 21. Now, I can argue with you that that's not necessarily a good thing, but, um, but they were effective. Their advocacy worked without any money. Same thing has been true uh, for breast cancer research. Uh, but, you know, few people understood that uh, at one point when I first started writing about this, long before I ever had breast cancer, the um, funding for all cancer and all heart combined was lower than the funding for AIDS. Why? Because the people who were concerned about AIDS had gotten together, organized, and advocated. Thank God. And have had a tremendous effect. We have rid this nation, not the rest of the world, but this nation no longer has pediatric AIDS. It's gone. And the reason for that is advocacy, because the research dollars follow, the, the research follows the dollars, and the dollars come from the advocacy. So breast cancer women saw what was happening there. They started advocating around breast cancer. And, uh, and it got to full funding for research. And we have had tremendous progress in the treatment since then because the advocacy worked. And then men caught on, and they're working on it for prostate. But um, it makes a difference. So that's the first thing. Advocacy really does make a difference. And all of you come from places where, you know, there's a member of Congress and your boards of directors are generally people who are influential with your members of Congress. And so that's terribly important. And, not, and of course, with your state legislatures. So advocacy. Authenticate. This is going to be a more and more important role for you uh, as the Internet not only expands. I mean, I find myself constantly checking dates. It's so easy. I'm sitting there writing away, and I just, you know, go to the little E icon away from my what I'm writing and hit Google and check Joseph Alston's date of birth. You know, it's wonderful. So I can say he was 21 years old at this time and be right, if the site is right. And uh, that is a real challenge. And you all have the imprimatur. You are the people who know. And so uh, to be in a position where you can say this is, the, this is the, the right version, the correct version, makes a tremendous difference. Uh, and uh, so I think that that role is one that, that you will be called on to play more and more. And the more you can have it there online, as, as, and that gets to the next point, accommodate, make it accessible, accommodate us in the public. Please don't see yourselves as the keepers of the flame. Uh, yes, it's great, you know, but we have to be able to see the flame. And uh, otherwise, you know, go out and um, in a dark room with no air. And we, the more, the more you can get to us as opposed to us trying to get to you, the better off the country will be in terms of knowing our history. Because we're not going to get to you. Um, and particularly somebody like me who's doing research from you know, places all over the country. So the way I'm going to get to you is on your website. 
and uh, and to make that website as friendly as possible, as interesting as possible, as accurate as possible, and to get as much on it as possible from the original records is just everything in terms of, of getting the history out there to everybody. Because that's that's the telling the American story, the whole American story. And it's a tremendously important task, and it's still such a fabulous story. Um, I talk about the National Archives. I went one day to, on Bill of Rights Day, to a naturalization ceremony there. And, you know, if any of you have ever been to a naturalization ceremony, they're just the most, you know, just goosebump-provoking events that you can possibly go to. And, and there in the rotunda of the National Archives with the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration, you know, in front of these people as they're standing there taking the oath, in this room, I always say that the rotunda of the archives is the closest thing we have to a, a national church. You know, it's kind of dark and quiet, and, and for those of us who are Catholic, it's very recognizable. You know, they've got the, the Constitution as the main altar, and the Declaration as Our Lady, and the Bill of Rights as St. Joseph. And, um, and the, um, and um, the uh, murals up above are, you know, all these white men with white wigs and knee bridges. And... Um, and below are these people from, I think it was 39 countries, every imaginable hue, uh, coming to this country because they believe in our story. This is their story now. And uh, I talked to a woman afterwards who was from Ethiopia, and I said, why did you become a citizen? She was in her mid-40s. And she said, because America is always there first to help people. And that's why this country's been so blessed, and I want to be part of the blessing. It's a wonderful story. And you are the people who can tell it. Uh, you are the people who are in the position to show all of our children and all of us the diaries, the letters, the, the shopping list, the, the dresses, the, the portraits, and yes, now even photographs. <laughs> of the people who came before us and have been able to tell our story. So I think that there's no question that you're relevant. You just have to convey the message. So thank you very much for letting me convey it with you. I appreciate it. We do have time. We do have time for a few questions, but I would ask you to please use the microphone in the center aisle because this session is being recorded. Uh, so while you're lining up, whoever is going to ask questions, I'll just say that uh, I, I missed my Cokie fix this week because we were away on the weekend that I didn't get to hear her on Monday morning. And I asked her if she was on on Monday, and she said, yeah, I was. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, Monday was Tuesday this week. <laughs> That's why I missed her. But now I feel like I've had my Cokie fix. <laughs> Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you for your advice. Questions and answer we have until about noon. Thanks. Yes, I appreciate your uh, presentation. It's interesting your remarks on Betsy uh, Hamilton. 
um, and her interest in, in, in history and her realizing the importance of history. So much of the historic preservation movement is a result of women in small towns and cities across the nation. Absolutely. Look at, the, look at Mount Vernon. Look at Mount Vernon, <laughs> and Savannah, Charleston, Annapolis, and so forth. Why do you think that is? Why do you think women have taken such a leadership role in historic preservation back before it was cool? Um, well, I think it's for two reasons. I think here's the bad reason. Um, this is like, you know, why are there so many women at NPR? Because the pay's not good. The bad reason is that people didn't take it seriously. So women were allowed to do it uh, because, um, because it wasn't business. Um, but the good reason is that uh, I do think women, uh, and uh, my mother would say, now you're being a true chauvinist, uh, which of course she is. And um, the, um, but I do think it's uh, that we do have a, a sense of the continuum that is different uh, from men. You know, we we will be changing the diapers, <laughs> and then, and we are the carriers of the culture. And, and not as immediate uh, as, as men tend to be. Now, I must say this, speaking to this group, I would urge a little more immediacy. You know, uh, I, I actually, when I was writing Founding Mothers, it's been a little bit better with this book just because the difference, first of all, people are taking me more seriously, but secondly, um, just the difference in a few years has made them access on the Internet better. But... Um, the cultural clash between a daily journalist like me and curators at historical societies like many of you can be rough. Um, you know, I need it at 3 o'clock. You don't think 200 years is too long to wait. And um, <laughs> that can be rough. Uh, but, um, but I do think women have a longer sense of, of history. I, I write about it, and we are our mother's daughter's and I'll just tell the story quickly, but it tells the story as far as I'm concerned. There's a little museum in Marathon in Greece, and it's not around the Battle of Marathon. It's much earlier than that. It was from a find way early, you know, in like 7,000 B.C. I mean, really an ancient little site. And what they've pulled out are um, pots and pans, some jewelry, uh, some children's toys, um, some buttons, uh, some weapons, and some, we think, objects of worship. And uh, for women, you walk into that museum and you can lift up those um, glass cases and you could pull out those things and start using them today with no sense of a break. Just put on the jewelry, pick up the frying pan, and go to work. And, um, and for men... Unless you're a warrior or a priest, um, there wasn't a lot to relate to, which I think has a lot to do with why they tried to keep women out of those roles for so long. Uh, but um, uh, so I do think that we do have a, a, a longer sense of history. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, Hillary Clinton claimed that there was a vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, Could I interrupt for one second? I neglected to say in terms of advocacy, Hillary Clinton's role, Lynn Cheney's role, and, uh, and the role of things like the History Channel uh, with Save Our History Day. I mean, you have friends here to hook up with, and I forgot to mention that, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. Fast right-wing conspiracy. Lynn Cheney wanted to, <laughs> Lynn Cheney wanted to abolish the NEH uh, 
at one point in her career, which, but she, uh, she uh, this vast right-wing conspiracy, which was a little hyperbole, um, and, uh, and you stated uh, much more than that. You poo-pooed it, as a matter of fact, on, uh, on your show. Um, some of us see that as, as uh, a real, and I was, uh, or, you know, I was wondering how the right wing will face, uh, if indeed she becomes a candidate, uh, her gender in particular, uh, as well as her politics uh, in uh, 2008. Oh, I don't think, think, uh, for Hillary Clinton, the question of gender is going to be a plus and a minus, as it would be for any woman. Uh, Right now, it's a tremendous plus, because her... um, lead in the Democratic uh, primaries or among Democratic voters is almost entirely among women. Uh, If you take women out of the equation, she and Obama are tied. But if you take women out of the equation, you know, this is, you know, one of my brothers-in-law says if things were different, they'd be different. Uh, But the, um, (laughs) but, (laughs) you know, if we hadn't had the 19th Amendment, Bob Dole would have been president and life would have been a lot less Interesting, uh, but more restful. And uh, the uh, so I the the fact is, at least at the moment, uh, being a woman is a great plus um, for her in the general election. We'll see. The groups that have tended to not vote for women have nothing to do with ideology. Uh, it has to do with demography. And um, and the two groups that have been most hesitant to vote for women are um, older women and Hispanic men. And uh, older women are coming around or dying off, and um, Hispanic men can be beaten into submission. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but the truth is, is that uh, any Democratic candidate, by the time the uh, conventions come around, and any Republican candidate, by the time the conventions come around, will have a negative rating of about 48% with the other party because that's where we are in terms of partisanship, which is what I was talking about earlier. Thanks so very, very much for being with us. Good to be with you. Uh, Yesterday on my way out, I bought Bill Clinton's new book on giving, which I think has some interesting ramifications for us, both in terms of the financial part of giving, but also in terms of the volunteerism Part of giving. I wonder if you can comment on this book or, or this topic. And I haven't. I, the book just came out, and I have not seen the book. But look, what this—it's fascinating. What this country is really doing, and, and again, I will give President Bush, the current President Bush, some credit here, uh, is um, is turning out as volunteers in unprecedented numbers. And again, this is almost uniquely American. Uh, you don't have anything like this in most countries in the world. You, the, the response to Katrina among uh, individual citizens, churches, corporations, foundations, nonprofits, was just unbelievable, continues to be unbelievable. Uh, and, uh, and that is something where people just, out of the goodness of their hearts, giving their time, their money, their expertise, or lack thereof, but learning quick. And, um, and uh, it has really been something wonderful to behold. And uh, I think there's a tremendous sense of, um, of desire to give 
in this country at all age levels. The problem we have is that there's not a connection in this poll after poll that shows this. There doesn't seem to be a connection in people's minds between voluntary service and public service. And we need to get more people civically engaged because, again, this country was founded on an idea. It's, you know, it's very different from any other place. You know, this country is only held together by the Constitution and the institutions it created. That's all we have in common. And, um, and so the idea of being disengaged from that and being disengaged from government and politics, I think, is sort of fundamentally un-American, um, which is why I think that everything you do is so important. It gets people into the American story. And um, I think um, that, that we need to pull those two together and tie volunteer service, which is just taking off like crazy, to a public service. I'd like to ask your thoughts about um, young people and education and the state of history teaching. But as an aside, let me say, we have in our archives the correspondence between Hamilton and Burr leading up to the duel. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Let me me ask your, your comments about, your thoughts about kids and teaching history in schools and and the state of that uh, issue at a time when all children are being left behind in the teaching of history in schools and um, the former head of the NEH launched a national history standards effort and then worked against it And, um, and when studies show that history teachers more than the teachers of any other subject in the public schools don't have backgrounds in history in their undergraduate studies. Do you do you see red flags in danger? Sure, do of course. Do we have our kids more a historical today than ever before? Has it always been this way? Just, uh, just, I, I, you just know, I'm advice. not I'm not qualified to talk about that. Bill uh, Laidlaw was telling me earlier, and he seems talk to him about it. Uh, <laughs> He, he, Bill was telling me that since No Child Left Behind that the number of hours uh, taught are fallen by three or something in high school in, his, in teaching history. Um, but, um, uh, and we have, I, we, I, I didn't pull it, but I had polling data of some big project that was done at elite universities asking, you know, history questions. I mean, this is at Harvard and the equivalents. And um, and they were multiple choice questions. I mean, they were not hard. And uh, the ignorance level was extremely high. Now, whether that's always been true or not, I have no idea. But um, I, I think that a lot of the fault of it, I mean, I'm sure that there's standards in the schools that are a problem and all of that. You know, when my kids went to Montgomery County, Maryland Public Schools, which are considered some of the best in the country, they had to take a course in oral communication. I was appalled, and I'm a person who makes her living orally communicating. And, um, you know, and so that was a requirement when, you know, it's just a waste of time. So um, I think that, um, you know, you you probably have in different states different requirements. I mean, used to be required that you had to take state history in most states. Um, Louisiana history was fun, but um, the um, but 
actually in Maryland history, I went back and forth as a kid. And in Maryland history, uh, I was in Catholic school, and they always taught that one of my ancestors killed all the Catholics. So that was <laughs> that was kind of interesting too. And um, the. But um, I, I suspect, I mean, I alluded to the textbooks, they are awful. They're just awful. They're boring beyond belief. And, uh, you know, I really think that that's a huge part of the problem, is that, you know, people have bored up history. And how they've done it is remarkable to me, because history is so interesting. But it's boring when you read a textbook, and it's probably boring when you sit in a classroom. Anybody else? I had a European history teacher in college who was so boring that my, um, my and it was right after lunch, you know, and it was, and it was in Boston, you know, and it was cold, and all I can remember of college really is is the smell of wet wool, and. Um, <laughs> And all of my notes from that class start, you know, like regular handwriting and then dribble down the page <laughs> as I fall sound asleep. He finally reported me to the dean for falling asleep. I felt I should report him to the dean. <laughs> in, in recent years, there's been an increase in women in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And in your observations of Washington politics, do you, well, how do you see that going forward? Do you see that increase continuing? And what impact do you think that's going to have on uh, the body politic? Um, the increase of women in, in Congress, uh, praise the Lord. The, um, when my mother went to Congress in 1973, there were exactly 16 women in the House of Representatives. And then uh, for years, it never got above about 27 until finally about 1962. And I kept writing year after year, election after election. It's the year of the woman. Oops. Uh, and uh, finally in 92 it was and has been since. And now we have 65 in the House, counting the delegates, and 14 in the Senate. Um, and um, the what we know about women in legislative bodies, we know more from state legislatures than from the federal legislature because it has only been in recent years that we have had a sufficient number of women to be able to pull enough data together to make it meaningful. But, um, but what I know by observation in the national legislature completely bears out what we know from the state legislatures, which is that Women in political office tend to be, uh, and this is obviously a broad stroke, less ideological and more pragmatic than men do. And so they will come together, uh, particularly on issues relating to women, children, and families, uh, to uh, try to get something done as opposed to just fighting with each other. And you see that on a variety of pieces of legislation. Um, uh, in both the House and the Senate. And the women in the Senate have a regular monthly dinner where they come together and just, because, you know, they're just desperate for a testosterone-free zone. But they, uh, <laughs> but they, but they are, that means that they are really the only little bastion of bipartisanship in the Senate. And uh, so I think that's the general effect, is that it's, it's more practical, it's more uh, results-oriented. Um, and um, and more bipartisan. So, okay, go ahead. 
in the decades prior to the Civil War, we had a, a lot of political leaders who, when they would give their arguments in Congress, they would give this rich sense of history that they would base their arguments on. But you being in the political arena today, does, do our politicians have that sense of history anymore? Well, Bob Bird does. Um, <laughs> we hear a... We hear a good deal about the Roman Senate. Um, but in fact, his books, uh, his books on the history of the Senate are terrific. I really recommend them. Uh, Richard Baker, who is the historian of the Senate, has worked with him on them, and they're, they're really good. Um, but, um, and each, each chamber does have a history office. In fact, the House has two competing history offices. And... Um, not partisan. It's institutional. Those of you, I'm sure you don't know anything about institutional. Probably. But um, uh, and um, you have individuals who care a great deal, and they will talk about it. When you tend to hear it the most is when you're talking some major debate, and of course, when you're talking about the period up to the Civil War, you're talking about the major debates of slavery. Um, the major debate of the war have been the times you've heard it. The Persian Gulf War Resolution in uh, in January of 1992, uh, no, 91, um, that was a debate just rich with history. And it was so interesting because you had many more World War II veterans still there um, than you do today. Um, And the same thing was true and the Iraq War resolution, although at that point, you know, that it was so post-September 11th that the country was much more immediate. But um, so you do hear it from time to time, but it tends to be only when it is, you know, something major like that. But they are not devoid of history. They are people who do have some sense, many of them, of, of what went before. And, you know, there are members of Congress who are descendants, and they, people like Freelinghuisen in New Jersey, you know, there's been a Freelinghuisen around since the beginning of the country. Um, and uh, Chris Dodd uh, is very interested in the history of the institutions. So you have, because his father was there, and you, you have people who, who do care a great deal. But is it like the period before the Civil War? No, because we're not debating those kinds of issues, thank God. No. Many of our history museums and organizations are in dire straits financially. And when you talked about advocacy as one of the key things that we need to do, what do you think are the important points that on a local, state, and national level that we need to be doing to compete against diapers and formula and health issues? Well, you can't compete against those issues. So, you know, just sort of be in a different place. Uh, are there going to be priorities? Of course there are. And health priorities are key. But you're not, you're not asking for anything like the same kind of money. Uh, you know, you're cheap. And um, the, uh, the fact is, is that that's where you go at it, though, is you go at it through the children. I mean, it's, it's all a question of, you know, having our children understand what this country is about. So you, you know, I think that that's, that's where you make the, make the case is for the kids. Thank you so much for fighting for our cause in history. And she took my question. So. <laughs> okay. 
How you doing? Good. How about um, you? Good. I won't complain. Seeing that uh, media and museums are so closely connected, um, how can and in what ways do state and local history and news media, um, how can they help keep each other accountable to that advocacy as well as authenticity in terms of reporting history, current history as well as past history um, from, uh, from multiple sides and multiple... Right. Well, the question of authenticity is huge these days in terms of journalism because who's a journalist? Um, you know, uh, the, the blogosphere has some wonderful attributes, and I am all for uh, access and, you know, not having some priestly cast of journalists over here who are uh, inaccessible and, uh, and, and do not communicate uh, or listen to uh, the rest of the world. On the other hand, um, when people just sort of opine and put things up there that they not, don't necessarily know anything about, uh, and it's all treated exactly the same, it's a problem. And um, and so I think our job in the in the mainstream media is to be as as accurate as humanly possible, um, and we fall down on that, and we fall down on it for a variety of reasons, and and you know some of it has to do with getting the story and getting it fast, and and all of the immediacy has made it harder because you don't have time in many cases. Uh, to check something as well as you should, or something just comes in raw and uh, people slam it on the air, which is really scary. Um, but um, I think that uh, that having, uh, that being accountable for accuracy is terrible. A lot of different uh, competing interests going on right now, and, and I think by and large that's healthy. But what it means is that all of us, you in your field, me and mine, have to be uh, very, very careful that what we're doing is right, is correct. And I don't mean politically correct, I mean factually correct. No. Of course, sometimes it's hard to know. I mean, was Burr a traitor or not? Their views? I think so. <laughs> Go ahead. As someone who is very passionate about history and uh, and finds it inherently very exciting, as do I think everybody in this room, what are some places that you've been to or visited museums or historical sites that you think are exemplary in terms of bringing history to life and really making it accessible to a general public audience? Well, I'll start at the archives because I know it best. Um, and uh, what you know has gone on there is just incredible in terms of both the uh, uh, American experience and now the Learning Center. So there's just a you know, tremendous activity that makes it uh, interesting and accessible. Mount Vernon. Now, I know I'm naming places that have money. But, you know, the archives, I mean, we're talking about the archives have been privately raised. Um, this is not government money I'm talking about. And um, the, um, God bless you, the um, Mount Vernon, again, there's not a penny of government money at Mount Vernon. I mean, it started with the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and it still is the Mount Vernon Ladies Association with the regent. It's <laughs> uh, quite a sash. But, the, um, uh, but what they've built there is just 
fabulous in terms of making it. I mean, any eighth grade boy have a blast at Mount Vernon today. And, um, and then ladies of a certain age also would uh, because, uh, you know, they've got a fine arts section and then this great interesting section on the history. Uh, and then just little things, you know, lots of your museums probably have this now, but I find it wonderful with my grandchildren. Costumes! You know, just going in the room and play the toys of the era, those little wooden toys and letting them wear the costumes. And, you know, there's a certain amount of just osmosis there that when you when they go in and try on the little costumes and and you're telling stories and and there's somebody, you know, you're telling explaining why you're in that house, you know, um, then that that starts an interest uh, that goes on. You have to be careful that it, it is interesting because otherwise, oh, my God, you're not going to take us to another spinner, you know. Um, but um, heard that one. Uh, but the, um, but uh, the, I, I just think that you know, making it, telling the story. I mean, that I keep coming back to that because the story, you know, you go any Saturday morning to a children's bookstore or the children's section of, a, of Barnes & Noble or Borders, whatever, and there's a storyteller in there. Maybe she's reading the children's books. Maybe it's somebody who's a storyteller by profession. And you've got dozens of little kids sitting around with their eyes wide open and their parents all there having made the time to come because the kids love it so much. You can do that in an historical museum. The stories are wonderful. And you know, have somebody telling the stories to the kids and doing it with the stuff you've got to show them. Look at this letter. A little girl wrote that letter 200 years ago. That's fabulous. No? One more, and then I do have to catch a plane again. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. Looking around the room, it would seem that there's a somewhat fair reflection of uh, gender demographics. But it would also seem that it's not an honest reflection of the racial and ethnic demographics of the United States, assuming that national organizations like AA, SLH, AAM, NCPH are reflections of their organizational organizations that make up its constituents. What could we as local organizations do better to come up with a more honest reflection of local and national democrats. You know, I'm really not the person to, to answer that question. This is what your meetings are all about. And uh, you're going to have lots of experts in the field uh, talking to you about these things. I mean, but I've, I've told you what I can talk to you about. And, uh, and I know that you'll hear all kinds of, of useful and uh, meaningful things from the rest of this great meeting that you're going to have uh, over the next few days. So... I'm just very grateful that you let me be with you at the beginning of it, and I hope you have a wonderful time in the next couple of days. Thank you very much.